We are in part 39 of our 40-part series called The Empowered Church, going through the book of Acts. We're going to be in Acts 21 today. That's on page 931, if you're using the Bibles underneath the seat in front of you. And if you look at your bulletin or at the app, you will notice we are starting today in Acts 21, verse 27, and we are going all the way through Acts 26, 32 which for those of you scoring at home is five chapters of scripture. That means church is going to be four hours long today. I hope you hydrated. Don't worry. We will have picture in picture of the 49er game starting at one o'clock. And uh, no, I'm kidding, of course. Uh, I promise you that we will... Uh, get out on time today. And the reason I promise is because I have a reputation to keep with our Kidsway staff. And that reputation is Pastor Brian never goes over time. And like there's no need at all to name names or point out anybody specifically. But let's just say not every pastor on our teaching team has that reputation. So I'm just, you know, you can make your guesses. Anyway, all right. Because I'm watching the clock here. Because we're tackling such a huge section of scripture, I'm not going to be able to read all of it line by line, of course. I'll summarize some parts and we'll zero in on the others. But broadly speaking, what we're going to see today is the Apostle Paul, kind of the main character of this section of the book of Acts, just in all sorts of situations of of, of duress, right? He is not doing well in these chapters. But what we're going to see is as he faces just incredible obstacles and difficulty, his heart and his character and his love for Jesus is going to continue to shine through. And The truth is, while hopefully none of us experience what the Apostle Paul experienced in the passage we're studying today, false imprisonment, going in front of mostly bogus courts, that sort of thing, as long as we live on this earth, most of us are going to live most of our lives under some sort of stress. In fact, most of us, we are so used to being stressed that if at some point we felt no stress at all, we would immediately become stressed about our lack of stress. Am I right? Right? But unfortunately, too often, our stress triggers some harmful behavior, and there's grace for that. We're allowed to have our moments where we mess up and our life situations get the best of us. But too often, we excuse our harmful behavior by just reminding everyone we're stressed or we're going through difficult things or whatever the case may be. But I just want to ask the question, what if there is a better way? What if our faith gave us the resources we need to respond to the trials, to the obstacles, to the incredibly difficult situations we're going to face in our lives in a way that allowed us to feel the emotion of it, to not pretend like bad situations aren't bad, in a way that did not require us to just sort of put on a fake smile or put a bow on a situation that's actually quite messy. But if our faith allowed us to respond in a way that the security and peacefulness that comes from having Christ as our foundation could shine through us even in those moments. I think if we could do that, that would transform marriages. I think that would transform workplaces. I think that would transform family dynamics and, and friend dynamics. And I believe ultimately that is what God who loves you wants for you. And more than that, I think on some level, I think that's what you want for you. I know that's certainly what I want for me. So we're going to talk about that, and we're going to see it in the life of Paul as we go through this story. Just to catch you up in case you missed last week, when we were 
Together last time, Pastor Lance walked us through a passage where the Apostle Paul had just returned to Jerusalem after some missionary journeys in Europe, in Asia, out sharing Christ with Gentiles, non-Jewish people. And when he got back to Jerusalem, he connected in with some of the church leaders there, and they were happy to see him. But they said, Paul, you got to understand, the Jews here in Jerusalem are a little upset with you. Because you're going off and you're sharing Christ with Gentiles, with non-Jews, they are starting to believe that you are dishonoring their laws and customs. And those laws and customs are very, very important to them. So they said, okay, Paul, what we think you should do is here's a group of guys who are going to go down to the temple. We want you to go down to the Jewish temple with them. And we want you to participate in what is called a Nazarite vow. A Nazarite vow would have been a very sacred sort of, uh, sort of ritual for the Jewish people. And by participating in this Nazarite vow, you're going to show the Jews around here that you're actually not dishonoring their traditions. So Paul, Pastor Lance showed us this last week, Paul, for the sake of unity, for the sake of easing tensions in the city, goes down to the temple and participates in the vow. The problem is it did not work in terms of settling everybody down. That's where we pick up the story in Acts chapter 21, verse 27. When the seven days were almost completed, seven days of purification for the vow, the Jews from Asia, seeing Paul in the temple, stirred up the whole crowd and laid hands on him, crying out, men of Israel, help. This is the man who is teaching everyone everywhere against the people and the law and this place. Moreover, he even brought Greeks into the temple and has defiled this holy place. For they had previously seen Trophimus the Ephesian with him in the city, and they supposed that Paul had brought him into the temple. Then all the city was stirred up, and the people ran together. They seized Paul and dragged him out of the temple, and, once, and at once the gates were shut. Once again, as you can see, nobody has settled down here, right? Paul, once again, finds himself surrounded by a bunch of hysterical people. This is something of a reoccurring theme in the second half of the book of Acts. So these Jews from Asia, likely a city called Ephesus, where, where, by the way, a Gentile mob had almost killed Paul in Acts chapter 19, so it's safe to say Paul was not very popular there. They see Paul and they get all stirred up. They accuse him of bringing a non-Jew into the inner courts of the temple. Now, you got to understand, this was a very serious charge. In fact, bringing a non-Jew into the temple was a crime punishable by death. But here's the thing. Paul didn't do that. And as you can see from the text, they have no evidence that he did that. But that didn't stop the anti-Paul crowd, from believing this anti-Paul thing. See, too often, as humans, we are more interested in what we want to be true than what is actually true, especially when it comes to people that we don't like. And that's largely what's happened here. The Jews didn't like Paul, so when rumors started going, they just believed them without investigating to see if the rumors were true. Not only that, they spread them around. Now, it's easy to look down on them, but don't we do the same thing? I'm pretty sure like half of all activity of so on social media is people just sharing false information about people that they don't like. See, when we receive information it's easy to fall into the trap of caring about whether or not it supports our opinions than caring about whether or not it's true. See, in this case, the, Paul, the, the Jews, excuse me, had already decided that they didn't like Paul. 
So then when somebody made this false charge, they just believed it and they ran with it. When we believe and repeat false things about people or institutions that we don't like, it feels great in the moment. That's why we do it. We might even think we're doing something good. But we absolutely destroy our credibility. We absolutely destroy our credibility. Furthermore, when we share false things even about people that we don't like, we dishonor our Lord who admonishes us again and again and again in Scripture to not lie and to put away falsehood. And even though that's true, it has been my experience that all too often we as Christians are fine with lies as long as they support our point of view. See, you're not going to find the phrase, the ends justify the means in the Bible. And there's a reason for that. When we choose to follow Christ, we commit ourselves to a different standard of honesty, integrity, and consistency. And frankly, we just don't have a lot of places in society to look to see that modeled for us. But nevertheless, that is what we are called to. See, a question I like to ask myself when I'm engaging in like emotionally charged situations or maybe a topic I'm close to emotionally or maybe something controversial is I like to ask myself the question, what do I need to be true? Because, and I want you to track with me on this, this is a little bit nuanced, but I just think it's so important. When I need something to be true, I am in a very dangerous position. Because if I need something to be true, I am actually highly susceptible to believing lies. Because what I will do is I will twist reality or selectively interpret information in a way that causes reality to conform with my beliefs and my opinions. In other words, I will become dishonest. I will become dishonest. See, if I need to believe, for example, if I'm in a conflict and I need to believe that the other person is entirely at fault, I will selectively interpret information to support that conclusion. Or if I need to believe that everyone is out to get me, or I need to believe that only my side is pure good and the other side is pure evil, what's that going to do? It is going to make a liar out of me. And the same thing can happen to you. I'm gonna give you a very, very silly example to kind of illustrate a point that applies to much more important examples. So if you know me, you know that I'm a sports fan. I go to a lot of sporting events and uh, the words and behaviors of fans at these events have given me ample opportunities to talk with my children about what is and is not appropriate human behavior. And I've heard people shout a lot of things at sporting events before. But I have never once heard anybody shout from the stands, come on, ref, you're totally favoring our team. Come on, this isn't fair. You're giving us a huge advantage. (laughs) No one ever says that. And yet how often has I heard the opposite? Sports fans, and I am one, we are a very odd bunch, and we seemingly have this desperate need to believe that the referees are against us and they're against our team and they've conspired beforehand that our team is going to lose. So what do we do? We interpret ambiguous situations to support that conclusion. And then we say and do ridiculous things. I mean, I'll take my kids 
to King's Games and the whole arena will be just booing and, and going crazy and grown men and women will be shouting the most insane things at the, by the way, total strangers on the court who are refereeing the game. And I'll just be the one sitting there telling my son, these people can boo and yell all they want. That was a foul on us and it was not a particularly difficult call. And some might say, oh, come on, well, where's your loyalty? Below my integrity, <laughs> that's where it is. <laughs> that's where it is. My bad. If I have to choose between being called disloyal and being called a liar, you can change my middle name to disloyal for all I care. And, and I got to tell you, if you encounter a person or an institution who is asking you to sacrifice your integrity to prove your loyalty, run. Run. And if you find yourself in a situation where you are sacrificing your own integrity to show your loyalty to a person, institution, or cause, it's time to get with God and some trusted people who can help you sort out what went wrong and get back on the right track. What do you need to be true? Because when you and I need something to be true, it can blind us to reality. And I'll tell you what is true, is that when Jesus Christ is our center, when we know we are safe and secure in our relationship with him, we can be clear-eyed about what's real and what isn't. See, all too often we want to believe what is false because we're scared. But when Jesus is our center, we can have the security and the courage and the moral clarity to speak against lies, even if they are lies that support our point of view. And by the way, there's just an added bonus that if you have that sort of moral clarity, you're way less likely to get caught up in a deranged mob like the one that happens here in Acts 21 and the kind that happen all over the world, including in our country, on a frighteningly regular basis. So getting back to the story, everyone's freaking out. Paul's dragged out of the temple, and then word gets to the Roman authorities that there's this big disturbance going on, and they don't like civil unrest. So the Roman Tribune comes down with a bunch of soldiers, and it says in verse 32, when the Jews saw the Roman Tribune and the soldiers, they stopped beating Paul. Well, that's good. The problem is, then the Romans arrest Paul and start questioning him. Hey, what's your deal that everyone is so upset with you? And this is a crucial point in the book of Acts because this marks the end of Paul's freedom, at least in the book of Acts. For the entire rest of the book, Paul will be a prisoner. He will not be a free man. And yet, he's going to continue to do powerful ministry. And yet, God will be active and at work in his life. And yet, he will remain focused on the mission God has given him to talk about Jesus to anyone who will listen. Through beatings and imprisonments and sham trials, Paul will remain who he is and he will share his story of what Jesus has done in his life. See, if you're following along on the bulletin or the app, I want to give you the fill in the blank because this is something that Paul understood. He understood that our trials are opportunities for testimony. Suffering brings with it a certain amount of credibility. Isn't that true? It's one thing to talk about the goodness of God when everything is amazing, and we surely should do that. But it's another thing to remember God's goodness even in our hardship, even in our pain, even in our grief. That doesn't mean we deny our hardship and pain, but it does mean we remember a God who meets us in those moments and who is greater than those moments. When we can lean on the reality of God's presence with us in moments of pain, challenge, and even grief, 
it says something about the reality of our faith to a watching world, doesn't it? See, when we face trials, we have unique opportunities to testify to the goodness of God. We have an opportunity to testify to how he has changed our lives and how his presence with us makes a difference. I mean, think about one of the most famous passages of scripture, Psalm 23. What does it say? Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. Why? Because you're going to make everything all better. (laughs) That's not what it says. I will fear no evil. Why? For you are with me me, when we can testify to a God who is with us in our moments of fear, when we can testify to God's saving and rescuing work in our life as we navigate trials, that's powerful. And that's exactly what Paul is going to do. He's going to keep telling his story. See, we've been talking about this all year during this year of power, the power of telling your story. And I just want to remind you again and again, the story of how God has worked in your life, it is powerful. I know it's normal to you. It might even seem boring to you because it's the only story you've got. But to the rest of us, it's extraordinary. We need to tell the stories of God's work in our lives because the trials we face, man, they're opportunities for testimonies. So Paul gets arrested. Romans are trying to question him but there's too much chaos to get the information that they need. Jerusalem crowd is shouting away with him at Paul in a scene reminiscent a few decades before when they shouted similarly at Jesus. See, we've been studying this book of Acts all year and we all know hopefully by now the book of Acts was written by Luke. Does anybody know, by the way, which gospel Luke wrote? Luke, fantastic, nailed it. Really, really good good job. And it's a common practice for historians to link historical figures by highlighting parallels between them. So, an angry mob shouted at Jesus. Now Luke is highlighting that an angry mob shouted at Paul. Jesus stood trial before, or twice before the Roman official Pilate and once before the Jewish high priest Herod Antipas. We're gonna see, Luke is gonna highlight that Paul will stand trial before Roman officials twice and the Jewish king Agrippa once. The fact that Luke is highlighting these things is not random. I'm just throwing that in there for my fellow Bible nerds in the room. You're welcome. Let's keep going. So Paul's under arrest. He's gotten beaten by this mob. Verse 40, he asks to address the crowd. And in chapter 22, he does so. And we're going to skip over the details of this speech because he's going to give a similar one in a couple of chapters. But he basically outlines for the crowd that he had been raised and educated as a Jew, but that Jesus had appeared to him on the road to Damascus and his life was changed. And he went from someone who persecuted Christians to someone who gave his life to spreading Christianity far and wide. And Paul finishes his speech in chapter 22, verse 21, with a flourish by saying that God told him that he needed to leave Jerusalem and go preach to the Gentiles. And it's almost as if hearing the word Gentiles reminded the crowd that they were mad at Paul because they'd been listening. They'd they'd settled down from being all upset. They were listening to Paul politely. And Paul says the word Gentiles and everybody loses their mind, Acts 22. Up to this word, they listened to Paul. Then they raised their voices and said, away with such a fellow, for he should not be allowed to live. Everyone's just doing a great job keeping their cool here. Verse 23, 
And as they were shouting and throwing off their cloaks and flinging dust into the air, the tribune ordered him to be brought into the barracks, saying that he should be examined by flogging to find out why they were shouting against him like this. Okay, first of all, you know things are getting seriously out of control if people start flinging dust everywhere. Like, that's how you know. Now, what's actually happening, what that's actually referring to is people shaking the dust from their clothing as a way of saying, we totally repudiate what's he, what he's saying. But I just like to picture a bunch of people getting mad and like throwing dust in the air. That's funny to me. Second, things continue to get worse for Paul. And that leads the Roman, and the fact that the crowd, again, is freaking out like this causes the Romans to believe, okay, there must be something seriously bad going on with Paul. We need to take him down and beat him until he talks. And what happens next is just wild to me. So they take Paul down into the barracks. They get him all laid down and strung out, ready to whip him within an inch of his life. And seemingly at the last moment, Paul says uh, to one of the soldiers, hey, is it, um, is it, just asking, is it lawful for you to flog a man who is a Roman citizen and uncondemned? The soldier immediately goes to his boss and says, hey boss, I think this guy's a Roman citizen. Boss goes to Paul and Paul confirms, in fact, he is a Roman citizen and it is extremely illegal to flog a Roman citizen who had not been tried and convicted. And at that moment, the mood in the barracks changes considerably. (laughs) It goes from like, let's whip him until his organs show to like, Paul, buddy. (laughs) Should I say Mr. Roman citizen? Guy, we totally were not about to whip till he bled really bad. Can we get you anything? Food, water, something. And now they're in trouble because they think they've broken broken the law for mistreating a Roman citizen. I just can't believe Paul waited that long to tell them. Like, if it were me, I walk into the barracks, I see the whip on the wall, I'm like, Roman citizen, right here, here's my driver's license, I'm out. (laughs) Paul's crazy, man. Anyway, he avoids another dangerous situation. Uh, And chapter 22 ends with this in verse 30. But on the next day, desiring to know the real reason why he was being accused by the Jews, the Roman tribune unbound him and commanded the chief priest and all the council to meet, and he brought Paul down uh, down and set him before him. So we're now in Acts 23. Roman officials get Jewish officials to come meet with them to say, hey, I want you to listen to Paul and help us understand what is going on with him. Verse 1. And looking intently before the council, Paul said, Brothers, I have lived my life before God in all good conscience up to this day. And the high priest Ananias commanded those who stood by him to strike him on the mouth. That's not very nice. I wonder how he did that. Was it like a hand signal or I don't know. Like, how do you command that? But (laughs) at that moment, Paul, who's like been beaten by a crowd, is like not having a good day. Like he has a moment where he sort of loses his cool for a second. And you know what? Those happen in life. Paul says, (laughs) Paul gets bopped in the mouth and he says, God is going to strike you, you whitewashed wall. Are you sitting to judge me according to the law? And yet contrary to the law, you order me to be struck. Then those who stood by said, would you revile God's high priest? And Paul said, I did not know, brothers, that he was the high priest of whom it is written, you shall not speak evil of a ruler of your people, which is a command from Exodus 22. Paul loses his cool. He insults the person who commanded the hitting in the face, not realizing that this person was the high priest. He probably wasn't wearing his priestly garments. Paul wouldn't have known him, etc. 
And I love it. This is what I love about Paul. Paul gets called out on that, his behavior in that moment. And he could have very easily gotten defensive. He could have easily been like, okay, I've been beaten. I've been thrown in jail. Y'all almost whipped me. And you want to get mad about my words. It's easy to do that. But instead, he just owns it. He basically apologizes. He's like, you know what? I know better than that. I should have done it. That's Paul's character shining through. So he continues to speak. He gives another speech. He manages in this speech to get the Pharisees and Sadducees, two different Jewish groups, arguing with each other. But that doesn't do much to improve Paul's position. But I want to show you, well, look at what it says down in verse 11 at the end of this section. So this all happens. He's still under arrest. Verse 11. The following night, the Lord stood by him and said, Take courage, for as you have testified to the facts about me in Jerusalem, so also you must testify in Rome. Early on in Acts chapter 9, when Paul originally saw a vision of Jesus on the road to Damascus, Jesus said that Paul would, quote, be a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. And here, Paul is being reassured by Jesus that, hey, you've got more work to do in front of me. This promise that you're going to speak of me in front of kings, it's going to come to pass. That's what Paul would understand, knowing he would be going to Rome for a very particular purpose, which we'll get to that in a little bit. And I just wonder, man, how often in our lives do we have circumstances that seemingly don't make sense, where in all rationality, we just want to freak out and, oh my gosh, everything's falling apart. No one would have blamed Paul for doing that here. But is it possible in some of those situations, it's God actually working behind the scenes to create opportunities for testimony that we would never have chosen and that we could never have predicted? Is it possible in moments of uncertainty in our lives, God is moving things around to set things up for maximum impact? That's what's going on for Paul. But just because that was going on for Paul does not mean it was going to be easy for him. Look at the next verse, verse 12. When it was day, the Jews made a plot and bound themselves by an oath, neither to eat nor drink till they had killed Paul. Okay, I'm just going to be straight with you all. I'm very inexperienced when it comes to hunting people down and trying to kill them. I just, I don't have a lot of, I don't know about you, I don't have a lot of personal experience with that. So I'm a little out of my depth here, but it just, it seems to me that a hunger strike could really interfere with an operation like this especially if it goes past, say, lunchtime. (laughs) But basically what they're trying to say is we're so serious about this, it's either Paul's life or our own. Spoiler alert, they're not going to succeed. What happened to them? We don't know, but we can predict with some certainty they were at least very hungry. Verse 13, there were more than 40 who made this conspiracy. They went to the chief priests and elders and said, we have strictly bound ourselves by an oath to taste no food till we have killed Paul. Now, therefore, you, along with the council, give notice to the tribune and bring him down to you as though you're going to determine his case more exactly. And we are, we, we are ready to kill him before he comes near. So that's their big plan. They go, the Jews go to their Jewish leaders and say, hey, talk to the Roman leaders and say, instead of keeping him with you, send him down to our part of town. And their plan, they said, okay, while Paul is in transit, we're going to like jump out of the shadows and we're going to kill him. So that's their plan. But it gets spoiled in like a really odd way. So there is absolutely no mention of specific family members of Paul 
anywhere in the Bible, except for right here, when his random nephew steps in and saves the day. Who was this nephew? We have no idea. What happened after this instance? Still no idea. But he appears in the story. He overhears this plot to kill Paul. He goes to Paul and says, hey, Uncle Paul, people are trying to kill you. Paul says to a soldier, hey, soldier, my nephew says people are trying to kill me. Soldier takes nephew to his boss and says, hey, boss, this guy says people are going to kill Paul if we transport him to the Jews. So the boss says, well, we can't do that. We can't allow that to happen. So he arranges for 250 soldiers to escort Paul out of Jerusalem to the coastal city of Caesarea, ensuring his safety from the mob and also ensuring there will be 40 very hungry Jews in Jerusalem. So Paul gets to Caesarea and he's there with a letter from the tribune to the governor of Caesarea, who's a guy named Felix. And the letter basically, basically says, hey, Felix, been a while. Hope you're doing well. I've got this prisoner. He's a Roman citizen. The Jews are trying to kill him. Good luck. Now, that's a little bit of a stretch, but that's not actually that far from what the letter said. So Felix gets the letter. He says, okay, once Paul's accusers arrive, we'll have a trial. And he puts him in Herod's palace to wait for his accusers to get into town, which if you're going to be in prison, a palace on the coast, I could think of worse places. That's all I'm going to say. Chapter 24. After five days, verse one, the high priest Ananias came down with some elders and a spokesperson, one Tertullus, and they laid before the governor their case against Paul. And the gist of their argument that they make to Felix can be found starting in verse five. He says, for we have found this man a plague, one who stirs up riots among the Jews throughout the world and is the ringleader of a sect of Nazarenes. He even tried to profane the temple, but we see him by examining him yourself you'll be able to find out what find out about him everything of which we accuse him Paul responds, verse 10, knowing that for many years you have been a judge over this nation I cheerfully make my defense which if you're going to defend yourself might as well be cheerful about it And he finishes his defense in verse 21 by saying to the Roman governor, hey, listen, it is with respect to the resurrection of the dead that I am on trial before you today. He's trying to say, listen, governor, I have done nothing wrong in terms of anything to do with Rome. I have not committed any crimes. I have not violated any civil laws. I am preaching about the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, and these Jewish leaders don't like that, so they're coming after me and trying to make me a criminal. Paul is trying to make the case, Rome shouldn't even be involved in this. This is a religious dispute. But despite all of that, Felix, wanting to keep the peace and not rile up the Jews, makes sort of a non-decision decision, and he keeps Paul in custody until the Roman tribune from Jerusalem arrives. But we learn in the next few verses that while in custody, Paul had some opportunities with this corrupt governor, Felix, who cared about little more than his own position and social standing and getting bribes and things to that effect. Verse 24. After some days, Felix came with his wife, Drusilla, who was Jewish, and he sent for Paul and heard him speak about faith in Christ Jesus. And as he reasoned about righteousness and self-control and the coming judgment, Felix was alarmed and said, go away for the present. 
When I get an opportunity, I will summon you. At the same time, he hoped that money would be given him by Paul. So he sent for him often and conversed with him. You got a bribe for me now? How about now? How about now? See, Paul's situation allows him to share Christ with a corrupt Roman governor. To a governor that was only interested in lining his pockets and favoritism, Paul got to talk to him about righteousness, about self-control, about the coming judgment, about the need for him to turn from his ways and trust Christ. How is Paul getting that opportunity if he's not in jail? I just wonder, what opportunities are you getting because of your difficult circumstances, because what Paul is doing here is so instructive for us. I mean, no, he is not accepting an unjust situation. When he has the opportunity, he is trying to regain his freedom, and yet he is taking opportunities to talk about Jesus. He is keeping his character and integrity intact. He is living and speaking in a manner that earns the credibility of the people around him. He knows that his trials are creating opportunities for testimony and he's not going to let that slip away. Verse 27 tells us that two years pass, and Felix leaves office and was succeeded by another governor named Portius Festus, but that Paul remained in prison. So now Paul has a new trial with a new governor, and it's the same story in Acts chapter 25. In 25 verse 7, the Jewish leaders bring serious charges they could not prove. Paul refuted them, But the governor left Paul in jail because he didn't want to stir up the Jews and cause a lot of social unrest. Festus then asks Paul, hey Paul, do you want to move your trial to Jerusalem? But Paul knows that Festus is bad news. He's not an impartial judge. His priority is not justice for Paul. His priority is keeping things peaceful in his province. So Paul knows he cannot trust him. And he says this in verse 11. He says, listen, if I'm a wrongdoer, and have committed anything for which I deserve to die, I do not seek to escape death. He's like, I'll take what's what I deserve. But, he says, if there is nothing to their charges against me, no one can give me up to them. I appeal to Caesar. Then Festus, when he had conferred with his counsel, said, to Caesar you have appealed, and to Caesar you shall go. Paul's right as a Roman citizen was to appeal his case all the way to Caesar, who at this time would have been the emperor Nero Caesar. And Paul knew this was a step to get closer to Rome, where God was ultimately leading him. And this was somewhat beneficial for Festus, who could now, the moment Paul says, I appeal to Caesar, Festus has no jurisdiction in this case. He can now pass it along to his boss and sort of wash his hands of Paul and all of the drama. (laughs) There was only one problem. If you're going to send a criminal to the emperor, you have to have something that you have charged them with. And Festus has nothing. So once again, we have a Roman official who brings in Jewish authorities, in this case, a king named Agrippa II, for the purpose of having this Jewish king help the Roman governor understand what the crime is. Look at what it says, or what Festus says, starting in verse 25 of chapter 25. As he himself appealed to the emperor, I decided to go ahead and send him. But I have nothing definite to write to my Lord about him. Therefore, I have brought him before you all, and especially before you, King Agrippa, so that after we have examined him, I may have something to write. For it seems unreasonable in sending a prisoner not to indicate charges against him. Yeah, that's fair. 
That seems pretty unreasonable. That'd be a bad look to be like, here, emperor, here's a criminal. Cool, what's his crime? I don't know. Can't have that. And here, in Acts 26, Paul makes his defense. And he makes, arguably, his greatest speech in the book of Acts, which, by the way, four chapters down, one to go. Y'all are doing great. Here we go. Paul says he's going to defend his former way of, or excuse me, Paul says he's going to defend himself and he asks for Agrippa's patience in listening. He speaks of his own life as a Jew and as a Pharisee. And then in verse six, he says this, and now I stand here on trial because of my hope in the promise made by God to our fathers, to which our 12 tribes hope to attain as they earnestly worship day and night. Paul's saying, I'm on trial because I'm telling you that the promises God made to our forefathers have come to pass, and I wish that everyone could see it. In verses 8 through 11, Paul talks about his original skepticism about Jesus, and then in verse 12, he talks about his conversion, how he was on the way to Damascus to persecute Christians, and then Jesus appeared to him in a vision. Let's read, starting in verse 15 of chapter 26. He says, And I said, Who are you, Lord? And the Lord said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But rise and stand upon your feet, for I have appeared to you for this purpose, to appoint you a servant and witness to the things in which you have seen me and to those to which I appear to you, delivering you from your people and from the Gentiles, to whom I am sending you to open their eyes so that they may turn from darkness to light, from the power of Satan to God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified, those who have been made holy by faith in me. Paul's saying, Jesus appeared to me, and he said, the task I am giving you is to go let Gentiles, non-Jews, know that God's love is for them, that forgiveness is for them, that there is a place in God's family for them. Verse 19, therefore, O King Agrippa, I was not disobedient to the heavenly vision, but declared first to those in Damascus, then in Jerusalem, and throughout all the region of Judea, and also to the Gentiles, that they should repent and turn to God, performing deeds in keeping with their repentance. For this reason, the Jews seized me in the temple and have tried to kill me. To this day, verse 22, I have had the help that comes from God, and so I stand here testifying both to small and great, saying nothing but what the prophets and Moses said would come to pass, that Christ must suffer, and that being the first to rise from the dead, he would proclaim light both to our people and to the Gentiles. Whew, our boy Paul is preaching now. And God's message through Paul to an ancient audience is the same as his message to us. That we have the opportunity to repent, to turn from our own ways and to follow Jesus, to receive the forgiveness and the salvation that comes from him. And then to do deeds in keeping with repentance. In other words, allowing the Holy Spirit to transform our hearts and our lives so that we are more like Jesus. And we do this not out of some sort of religious duty, but out of joyful obedience to the one who loves us the most. Verse 24 
And as he was saying these things in his defense, Festus said with a loud voice, Oh, Paul, you're out of your mind. Your great listening is driving you out of your mind. Verse 25, But Paul said, I am not out of my mind, most excellent Festus, but I am speaking true and rational words. For the king knows about these things, and to him I speak boldly. For I am persuaded that none of these things has escaped his notice, for this has not been done in a corner. Paul says, the king has seen all of this. No one here is trying to keep secrets. Verse 27, King Agrippa, do you believe the prophets? I know that you believe. (laughs) And I love what he says next. And Agrippa said to Paul, in a short time, would you persuade me to be a Christian? (laughs) Agrippa's like, are we about to have an altar call right now? (laughs) And look at what Paul says. Whether short or long, I would say to God, that not only you, but also all who hear me this day might become such as I am, except for these chains. <laughs> Let me throw that in there. Like, these chains are kind of a drag. <laughs> but my hope and my prayer is that all of you would come to know Jesus the way that I have, right? And I think what's really beautiful about Paul is he's got some people who are treating him really badly. And he's trying to stop that bad treatment, don't get me wrong. But Paul refuses to hate See, we're so quick to hate in our world today. And as followers of Jesus, we're called to a different way where we love our enemies. That's not a strategy for success. That's a strategy for faithful witness. And here's Paul exemplifying that, sharing Christ with his enemies. Verse 30, Then the king arose and the governor and Bernice and those who were sitting with them And when they had withdrawn, they said to one another, this man is doing nothing to deserve death or imprisonment. And Agrippa said to Festus, this man could have been set free if he had not appealed to Caesar. But he did appeal to Caesar because God had something else for him to do. Jesus was declared innocent by Roman authorities three times in Luke 23. Paul declared innocent by Roman authorities three times in Acts. In both cases, neither man went free because God had a greater plan in place. See, Paul's trials gave him an opportunity for testimony. And we have those same opportunities. Listen, in this life, we are going to face darkness. But as I stand next to the Advent candles, what do these candles remind us? They remind us of the truth that God's light shines into the darkness and the darkness will not overcome it. So as we walk in the darkness, the light of Christ that is in our hearts as individuals and is in us as a community can shine into that darkness and the darkness will not overcome overcome it. Our trials are opportunities for testimony, and as we let the light of Christ shine in those moments, I believe it can change some things, and I'm going to need somebody in the house of God to say amen this morning. Amen. 1230, right on the dot. We did it. Prayer team, come on up. Let's pray. God, we thank you for your light that shines in each and every one of us. Thank you, God, that trials create opportunity for testimony. God, as we go about our weeks this Christmas season, may your light shine brightly in us. May we know your presence and your purposes and your plan and your power. And may you be glorified as your light shines in us and through us this Christmas and Advent season. We love you, Jesus. We pray these things in your awesome name. And all of God's people said, Amen. amen. God bless you. Have a great rest of your weekend.